Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. I'm going to start with some beautiful text from um, uh, Te Ao Māori, the the Māori world uh, in New Zealand. Uh, It's a poem, and it goes like this. Whakatakate hau ki te uru, whakatakate hau ki te tonga, kia mā kina kina ki uta, kia mā tara tara ki tai, e hi akeana te atākura, he tio, he huka, he haumahunga, haumie huie tāhiki e. And I'll read you the translation of that, um, of that Māori greeting. Get ready for the westerly and be prepared for the southerly. It will be icy cold inland and icy cold on the shore. May the dawn rise red-tipped on ice, on snow, on frost. Join, gather, intertwine. And, um, and I love that join, gather, intertwine at the end because that's what we are all here um, doing today. And special thoughts to you people um, in Melbourne. If there's anybody there from Melbourne, um, we in New Zealand are sending you our, our best love and thoughts across the ocean. And we're hoping that New South Wales doesn't close down as well. So, um, so yes, I'm Miranda Harcourt. I'm an acting coach and um, I'm going to just put my phone to one side. There we are. Um, I'm an acting coach and um, some of you will know that because you will have worked with me either on set uh, where I work with people of all ages uh, or on Zoom where I support people uh, in the the offers and performance offers that they're taking with them to set to work with the directors and the other um, cast members um, and sometimes um, in in other ways as well. Um, Sometimes actually you may have encountered me on my... Um, my YouTube channel, which I now have, and um, there are 14 videos up there on my YouTube channel. And if there's anything that interests you today, I might, I may well refer you and say, hey, look, go and have a look at um, uh, at my YouTube channel because, oh dear, whoopsie, um, because uh, you might be able to find further information there. But um, guys, the way I want to start today is by showing you some material. So I'm going to um, share the screen. I hope that I'm going to be able to do this. There we are. I think I can because I'm a co-host. Um, can you just give me, Suzanne Brimley, I can see you on the screen. Can you just give me a nod if um, you can see the, the word on the screen adjustment? Awesome. Thank you, friendly, helpful person. Um, so I'm going to start off by showing you some material um, out there. And then in the second half of this session, we're going to kick off with some questions. Uh, because otherwise it's just me talking um, lonely as a cloud um, over here in Wellington, New Zealand. Um, So if you find that you can't see the screen, um, could you let me know or let Catherine know? Uh, So maybe Suzanne, do do you want to be my friend, Suzanne, be my helpful person? Awesome. I lip read that she said yes. So if there's a problem, um, my friend Suzanne is going to be the person who lets me know about it or, um, or Catherine. Great. So I'm going to start with some thoughts about adjustment. And, um, and adjustment is, is what I, um, uh, we all know to be what directors give you, the tiny little kind of um, uh, little bits of input, little drips of input that directors and other actors sometimes will, um, will give you in order to achieve um, a, a shift or a change in the performance. And they're often really, really tiny. And an image that I, um, that I have in my mind when I talk about adjustment is a glass of water um, into which you, here's a glass of water for you, it's actually a glass of lemon juice, but um, a glass of water. And you might just put like a tiny drop of blue food coloring into the glass of water. And you know what happens. The whole, the, the color of the whole glass of water completely changes, even though the drip of food coloring is just very, very tiny. So an adjustment can be really tiny. Now, what Marcel Duchamp, the um, French artist and philosopher, called that is infrathin, or in French, infrahmance. But in, uh, but in English, it's infrathin, the infrathin dis- difference. And um, this is uh, how he described the infrathin difference. It is as though there's somebody sitting on one of these chairs. It's Suzanne Brimley because your face is there for me, Suzanne. So Suzanne Brimley is sitting on one of those chairs and she gets up and she walks away. And, um, and even though these two chairs are exactly the same as each other, one of them is slightly different because Suzanne Brimley's body heat is left in the chair. And that is what uh, Marcel Duchamp calls the infrathin difference. So in a way, in the work that we do today, I'm just talking to you about that tiny, tiny difference. We're not making huge shifts we're just using imagery, we're using um, uh, thought to shift performance. Okay, I'm gonna 
talk to you a little bit about this great concept, embodied cognition. The body affects the mind just as the mind affects the body. And you know what? A good example of that is that right now I'm standing on my Shakti mat with my bare feet. And, um, and that's because um, my Shakti mat uh, gives me a little bit of pain and sensation in my feet that reminds me that I exist. It reminds me that, I, that my whole body is part of my performance. It's not just my head and my mouth and my imagination and my mind that's producing the, the material that I'm presenting. It is actually my whole body. In fact, this morning, I was just talking to a young actor uh, who's got to act being pregnant, even though she's never been pregnant. Now, that's a hard um, challenge. And I said to her that maybe it would be a good idea if she just used a little bit of colored tape, like a little bit of colored gaffer tape like this, and she could use a tiny bit of that and just tape it on her belly to remind herself that, um, that, uh, that, she, that her spirit and her emotions are very tied up in the, the physical state of her belly. And then we went further than that, actually, in terms of the relationship between um, the character and the character's partner, um, the guy that she's pregnant to. And I said, well, maybe every day you could use a different kind of tape. Just ask, ask the gaffer on set. You could use red, green, blue, pink, whatever. And, um, and it could be a guessing game between you and your partner where he has to guess what color tape you're wearing today. So there's just, there, these are little kind of ideas where you, um, you share a secret with another actor in order to create that sense of connectivity. You share a secret with yourself by giving yourself a physical sensation. Um, and, and let me come back now to embodied cognition. That's what embodied cognition is all about. The body affects the mind just as the mind affects the body. And even in terms of text and thought, your relationship with your body is very important. I've just got a few slides here that I'm going to show about this idea of the body and the mind. Here I am with my daughter, Thomason, who was feeling very, very um, nervous and underwhelmed and out of her body. Uh, we were in LA recently. And, um, and I said to her, you know what I think we need to do? I think we need to go down to Venice Beach and go on that roller coaster because that will shift your experience of your body and accordingly it will shift your experience of what's going on in your mind and your confidence about um, what it is you have to do. So um, here, this is not us on the roller coaster, but... That's not us on the roller coaster, but you get the picture. So by, um, by engaging in something exciting, something pleasurable, something um, engaging, swimming, uh, going on a roller coaster is quite an extreme example, um, can shift your relationship with your, with your body and therefore with, your, um, uh, with the text and thought that, you, that you're carrying as you move into your performance. And here's another example, actually, this is my dear friend, Eleanor James, who may well be on this Zoom, I don't know, um, who is doing this, I've chosen this because it's really short, but this is uh, Bungie. So let's have a look at Eleanor doing a bungee. So just keep with them forcing your toes right over. Let's go, okay, girls up above That's your head. Wave, wave the smile up here. Thank you, Edna. So, um, so what I'm talking about here is giving yourself a physical experience in order to feel more grounded in the way in which you're able to speak out your text. In this session, I'm going to talk also about processes of learning. I'm going to talk about um, processes of thinking about thought and, and thinking about text, but I just want to open with this introduction to, um, to the body. And this is very connected to other exercises that I use, and you can see on my YouTube channel, on my YouTube channel, I love saying that um, sentence, um, things like hug to connect or, um, or hongi. Now, we are really challenged in the body at the moment because uh, in all countries other than New Zealand and some of the Buddhist countries, um, uh, we're really affected by COVID and we are, we've become more fearful and less trusting of our relationship with other people. So we've got to find ways to reach out and connect to each other, uh, even if we're not able to use touch. Because I'll say it again, the body affects the mind just as the mind affects the body. And if you are fearful uh, of the other actor that you're working with or fearful of the person behind the counter of the petrol station or fearful of the person in the street, that is going to affect your body. It's going to affect also the way in which you're able to speak out your text. So um, let's always come back to the body and find ways to be grounded. And I remind you of um, my lovely Shakti mat that I'm standing on right at this moment. Uh, psychologist Daniel Kahneman 
uh, invented something called the late, he, he dubbed this the Lady Macbeth effect. Just thinking about committing a crime will change whether or not people buy soap at the supermarket. And in advertising, this technique is called priming. And I guess in, your, in relation to you and your performance, I'm just talking about priming, that tiny, subtle effect where uh, you can feel more grounded, more confident, more fearful, more joyful, more humor in the way in which your text emerges. And once again, it's about the relationship between what you're seeing in your mind and, um, and what your partner hears when you speak out your text. Okay, so finally, now we come to this idea of text. And I'm going to show you um, a few, let me just check my clock here, brilliant. I'm gonna show you a few images um, here uh, in terms of uh, what I'm talking about. I use a lot of artwork, of, um, of uh, visual art in the way that I um, think about acting. And here, uh, is a really lovely artist called Giuseppe Pannoni. I'm going to go back to this image. Giuseppe Pannoni, who is making an artwork where he's celebrating the, um, the what I would call the birth of the idea. He's gone from the outside skin of the tree, and you can see him here carving. All, he's found the knots in the tree, and he's carving around the knots to find the root of where those knots originally began before they became covered by, this, um, by the skin of the tree. Let me read this to you. In The Hidden Life Within, which is the name of the artwork, Italian artist Giuseppe Pannoni carves out a young tree within, within an older tree to reveal its past, showing us what once grew inside so that it may now live in the present. His work is inspired by the quiet slowness of growth in the natural world. The artist is asking us to take a moment to stop and think about the concept of time and how there is a common vital force in all living things. So thank you, um, Giuseppe Benoni. That's what he's aiming for, to achieve with his art. And here's the artwork uh, at the end. I've seen this work actually. I went to see it at the Tate um, in London last year. Isn't it beautiful? So he's, for me, this artwork, I, I call it the birth of the idea because the outer skin of the tree, which is the, the words, the tree's spoken words, the foliage, the branches, the bark, um, have been uh, excavated to find the birth of the idea deep, deep within the tree where many, many years ago, this is how the, um, the knots, the exterior uh, life of the tree first began. Uh, let's, let's go to Virginia Woolf, who says words, English words are full of echoes, of memories, of associations, naturally. They've been out and about on people's lips, in their houses, in the streets, in the field, fields for so many centuries. And I love her line where she says, words are full of echoes of memories of associations. And this reminds me of uh, the wonderful Australian acting teacher, Lindy Davies, who I think was at, um, and some people here, if you're from Australia, you will um, either know Lindy Davies or know of her work. And she developed a great technique called dropping in where, um, say you're doing King Lear and, um, and you're thinking about the beautiful text inside that play, dropping in is the process whereby word by word, your partner just drops individual words for you to roll around, not only inside your mouth, but also inside your spirit, inside your soul, inside your heart, inside your imagination, so that each word is able to, to reach the fullness of, of its impact and resonance in your being, before it is then spoken out again in terms of the, of the, the performance of the text. So uh, if anybody's got um, any questions or, or even comments about that process, I would be really thrilled to hear from you. Please uh, let Alex know in the, um, the, whatever that thing is called, where you type in your question or your comment. So thank you, Virginia Woolf, and thank you, Lindy Davies. I don't know where she is, where she lives now, but, um, but you know, a great human. Uh, and here, Catherine Mansfield, who's a very good friend of Virginia Woolf, and in, in fact, um, uh, Virginia Woolf famously said that the only person she was jealous of was Catherine Mansfield. And, um, and Catherine Mansfield came from New Zealand, where she probably didn't sound quite like this, but she, um, she certainly had um, a post-colonial um, aura to her. And then she went to the central Bloomsbury and made best friends with Virginia Woolf and, um, and Virginia Woolf went, wow, of all the writers in the world, Catherine Mansfield is the one that I'm jealous of. And here's something from Catherine Mansfield. She says, tell everything, even how the laundry basket squeaked at 75. But all must be told with a sense of mystery, a radiance, an afterglow. And my favorite part of this uh, paragraph is that she says, tell everything, even how the laundry basket squeaked at 75. And that tiny 
stupid idiotic detail of how the laundry basket squeaked at number 75 of whatever street she lived on, probably Crory Road, because that's where she spent her, um, her uh, later teen years. Um, she, she can still remember vividly those beautiful images in her mind um, of the, the tiny details of her life. And that's what her work is all about. And she's um, often called a, a, a sort of cousin in the writing world, a cousin to Chekhov, who we'll hear from a little bit later. Uh, because both Mansfield and Chekhov would just give us a biopsy of a bigger story. There's a huge story over here in the beginning of the story. There's a huge story that goes on um, after the end of the, of the little section that we experienced, but Chekhov and Mansfield would just give us a biopsy, uh, a, a little segment, and we're left to value the language and make the, of, of the story what we will. So um, here is Ibsen. Uh, if, if we were all in the same room together, guys, I would be asking people to read these out so that you don't have to listen to the boringness of my voice um, droning on. But unfortunately for you, uh, there are lots of you and we're in an environment where I have to do all the talking at the moment. So I'll read this out to you. Ibsen said, no declamations, no theatricalities, no grand mannerisms. Express every mood in a manner that will seem credible and natural. Observe the life that is going on around you and present a real and living human being. Wow, that is so mind-blowing because he said that so long ago. He said that the, the, when he and Chekhov and also um, in the world of, um, of short story writing Mansfield invented, essentially invented naturalism, where even all those years ago in the late 1800s, uh, Ibsen is saying, observe the life that is going around you, the laundry basket squeaking at number 75 and present a real and living human being. That's what I'm aiming for in my work as a coach is that you, in the relationship between you and your character, you're able to present a real and living human being on stage and also on, of course, on screen. Uh, so let's go to Tennessee Williams, who said the violets in the mountains have broken the rocks. What a great line. That's from the play Camino Real. So he's saying that the power of words is able to break the rocks. The power of, of, um, of breath, the power of imagination and the power of lived experience as it is spoken out through um, the utterance of words has got the potential to form change. Hello, um, Barack Obama. Um, hello, you know, many great speakers who are able to change minds and, um, and shift worlds uh, because of the power of, wor of words. So thanks, Tennessee Williams. The violets in the mountains have broken the rocks. And let's have a look at some powerful violets breaking through the rocks. And, um, and even more powerfully, I love this picture because this really is uh, the power of organic growth breaking through the asphalt on a pavement. And I think this is what Tennessee Williams is talking about. And that's what you have got the power to do in your relationship with your text, whatever it is that you're speaking out. So let's, um, let's move on. I want to talk a little bit about episodic, semantic, and procedural memory. Uh, but I'm not going to let you keep on looking at that picture. Otherwise, people will read it, and then we'll, um, we'll lose the organic uh, nature of the communication that we're building up, where you're thinking about text uh, using pictures as the inspiration. So I don't want you to be looking too much at, um, at text itself. But, um, but now I, I want to shift for a moment to um, the idea of learning. How do you learn? Uh, and this is something that has uh, struck me quite recently that w because we don't learn stuff off by heart so much in our education system anymore, I think that people, young actors in particular, kids, have almost lost the ability to learn text and then absorb it and then translate it into an organically reproduced um, spoken word. Uh, so often young people are saying to me, how do I learn? I'm like, what do you mean? How do you learn? You just like, you know, learn the words. I mean, surely it's obvious. And now I'm like, ha ha, I don't think it is that obvious. And I can tell that because often when I'm dealing with, um, uh, especially young people um, trying to replicate verbatim text, uh, they're not exact. The words on the page are not being replicated exactly. And what I would say is that you can only achieve true freedom inside um, the communicability of the text, inside your relationship with the other person. You can only achieve true freedom if you learn the words on the page absolutely exactly, including all the mistakes, including all the dot, dot, dot ellipses, including all the, um, the different kind of um, elements that the writers bring to the text. So here's 
Um, here's something, this is a really good example, actually. This is just something from my favorite script at the moment, um, anything from Humans of New York. And if you go to my YouTube channel, um, you will see that there's a challenge there. When I go, I think it's in um, Text and Memory, it's probably um, chapter eight on, the, on that, those YouTube videos, they're only two minutes long. Um, they're, they're called quick tips for a really good reason because they're really quick. So um, I think what I say in that one is go to the Insta site, Humans of New York, and just read a few of those beautiful stories which they're not quite verbatim because they haven't been recorded and transcribed exactly. And I can tell that because they're pretty tidily put together. They're verbatim and then they've been edited to, um, to be made into a comprehensible story. Whereas if they were truly verbatim, they'd be a little bit incomprehensible. But, um, but they are beautiful stories and beautiful characters. Now, my challenge to you as actors, particularly if you're, if you're an actor who's not able to act at the moment, uh, because of the situation in the world preventing you being able to work with other people or your plays on hold or your, um, your production of Harry Potter is on hold or your, um, your piece of film or television is on hold until we're all allowed to get together again. A great way to develop your facility with text and your facility with learning is to go to the site, Insta, the Insta site Humans of New York and, um, and learn a monologue a week. They're about 300 words long and um and they're really they're just such a beautiful resource here's a little tiny 100 word um bit of one of them all throughout our childhood we had these amazing handcrafted cakes trains ships castles dolls my sister got a stethoscope cake when she was accepted into medical school my other sister got a camera cake because she loves photography and i love reading so i got a book cake and that, that's just 100 words from a beautiful story on, um, on the Instasite Humans of New York. And, um, and coming back to this image here, there's such a strong element of real people, lived experience, um, uh, individual real characters choosing the words that, they, um, that they, they want to select in order to speak up their emotional truth. So the text there is very, uh, is very poetic. So coming back, though, to Humans of New York, how do you learn exactly? How do you learn uh, in, in, a way where, in a way where you're confidently replicating the exact text that's on the page. Not um, slightly improvising around the text, but learning it absolutely exactly in order to achieve 100% freedom in the way that it flows um, out of your spirit and out of your brain and eventually out of your mouth. Well, Indal Tulving, the psychologist, identified three different ways in which we learn. One is semantic, one is procedural, and one is episodic, or what I call experiential. And, um, and I'm just going um, to now show you the slide and read those um, out for you. So uh, semantic, which is the way most people learn material, is memory of facts and knowledge. Procedural is memory of how to do things. And episodic, or what I call experiential, is memories of events and experiences. So I'm just going to take that off the thing again, otherwise people will um, just do a little bit too much reading of it. Um, so most of us learn semantically, where we learn the text of the page as though we are learning maths and science homework. So I'm interested in leaving the maths and science department behind and coming to the humanities department and learning something because you've experienced it. And so for me, um, in this little piece that I just read to you about cakes, my suggestion would be that you learn it. Of course, you have to learn it um, with a little bit of maths and science because you've actually got to lift it off the page and allow it to rest in your mind. But I would learn that while I'm baking a cake and more importantly, while I'm icing the cake to make it into one of the things she talks about, photography, um, um, uh, a camera cake, a, what else does she say? A stethoscope cake, um, a train, a ship, a castle or a doll. And through that experience of using repetition line by line, repeating the text, experiencing it while you're sifting flour, while you're turning on the oven, while you are um, uh, making the icing, and then while you're decorating your, your cake. That's how experientially and episodically you are absorbing the nature of the, the spirit of the text, as well as being able to replicate exactly what you read on the page. So, um, so let's go beyond um, that writing to, to this image here, which I hope you can see. I'm going to come back to you, my friend Suzanne. Can you see that on the page? Great. Awesome. Thanks very much, friend. Uh, so th this is a picture for me of somebody who is thinking about the text too much and is um, shouldering the burden of the narrative to too great a degree, to the extent that I can't see the person. And that's what I want to be experiencing. I want to be experiencing the person 
the text, the language, the thoughts, the dialogue are only there to support the identity of the person. So this person is, is concentrating too much on the text and not enough on um, what Jane Campion uh, talks about. You exist. You are enough. You've got to um, have a, a robust relationship with yourself in order for the text to sit comfortably inside what is your specific and unique identity. So I'm going to show you a series of images um, that I um, borrowed off Facebook from my friend um, and cousin David Donaldson, um, who's a musician at Weta Workshop here um, over the Park Road Post, which is the, the post-production facility um, across the ocean from where I am now in Miramar, where um, they do post-production on heaps and heaps of films from around the world. So, um, so my friend David and his buddies, also from Park Road Post, wanted to go and help his brother re-roof and um, um, fix up his house, which you can see in this picture really needed fixing. It was a huge effort. They had to walk for three hours around the coast because the house is not able to be reached um, by, by driving. You have, to, you have to park. They had to carry the corrugated iron, they had to carry the tools, it was a big trauma. What I'm doing here is I'm giving you a metaphor for the amount of hard work that goes into learning your lines. So let's have a little look at the hard work that these guys put into mending this house. This is hard physical labor, just as it is hard physical labor, learning your lines and, um, and enabling your, shaping your brain to reflect the framework of the text um, using exactitude. They really need to replace that chimney. That's the guy who owns the house over here with the beard, um, Anthony. It's a long day. One of these guys, probably this one, hurt his thumb. So when they walked three hours out again, they then had to go to emergency for him to get stitches. So it's um, you know, physically painful and, um, and here they are nearly at an end. Good on them. Awesome, looks really great. And um, now here they are at the end, celebrating each other. So that's, can you feel how much hard work it was on that day? Great, thanks for nodding, Suzanne. <laughs> I'm taking your nod as a nod from um, everyone in the room. But you can see how much friggin' hard work it was to fix that house. That's how much hard work you have to put into learning. And that's how much hard work you have to put into um, being able to, uh, to build your text and then to walk away and be confident that the roof is not going to leak and you're not going to lose your shit when it comes to performing it. So let's come again to lovely um, Chekhov. I love this picture because it is so contemporary. Oh, you know, he just looks like your cousin on Facebook, doesn't he? He's, so, he's such a modern guy. Um, so thanks Chekhov, welcome to our um, session. So Chekhov talks about a submerged life in the text and that's what I wanna to talk to you about today is the fact that you learn the text, so what? That's the basic work you've got to do so that the house doesn't leak when you walk away. Um, but what's most important is the imagination between your experience, your lived experience. Um, I, I would also say your imagination and um, the, the submerged life in the text. So that when you speak out your, um, your piece of text, I go, hey, are you acting? Or did you actually live that experience? And it's only when you speak it out again and I hear those words on the page spoken exactly the same to me. I'm like, good God, that, that's somebody who's learned the text beautifully, but, um, but has endowed the text with an amazing degree of um, Chekhov's submerged life inside the text. And once again, that comes back to Indel Telving, the psychologist and his idea of um, episodic or experiential learning, where learning your text by walking up the beach, learning your text by um, going on the escalator at Te Papa or, um, the, the museum in New South in, in Sydney or Melbourne. Um, learning your text by getting to an elevator and just going up and down the elevator until you, until you learn the text. Finding some thematically resonant location to learn your text and going and learning it there. I worked um, recently with somebody who was auditioning for a prison show similar to Wentworth or um, Westside, um, if you're depending on whether you're in New Zealand or Australia. But let's go with Wentworth because it's so prison-y. And, um, and my friend was... Um, was auditioning for a role on a prison show. And I said, well, you know what I'm going to say? And he said, yeah, I know what you're going to say. I should get in my car and drive to the, uh, the, the car park, the visitor's car park outside the local prison and, um, and learn my lines in the car park, preferably at seven in the morning where um, the men or women are being released. Because in doing that, in, in applying Indel Tolving's episodic or experiential approach to learning, 
um, you are creating a lived experience, the submerged life in, um, in the text, as Chekhov says. So, um, uh, so let's keep on trucking through the slideshow in order that um, you can then ask your questions. Now, um, Suzanne Brinley, I'm going to say thank you and I'm going to flow on because I just want to check out if I can see other people and whether um, uh, other people are feeling engaged. Oh, I see you to me, Cameron, Kira. Um, and, um, and Claudia, hello to you. So, um, so hello, Tim Mintram. I saw you, actually, no, I've lost you now. I'm going to go to, um, um, to Kahu Kaiha. Kia ora, can you be my new friend? And, um, and if there are problems with um, being able to hear or see, just let me know by putting your thumb up to the lens and getting my attention. Beautiful, thanks, Kahu. Um, great, so, we've, um, so thanks, Chekhov. Let's go to the submerged life of the text. Let's go to um, the Titanic which is one of the two um, deepest, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's one of the two um, shipwrecks which, which went to, to some of the deepest parts of the ocean. And, um, and here's another image of the submerged life in the text. Now, what I don't have a picture of here, but I'm gonna ask you to imagine this in your mind, is the surface of the ocean immediately above the edge of the Mariana Trench where the Titanic um, sunk. And, um, and the, the surface of that ocean, it might have a few waves on it, there might be some fish, there might be some seagulls, but essentially there's not, not a sign saying, you know, guys, guys, the Titanic is under here, which is why it took them so freaking long to find it. But um, just because the surface of the water is smooth doesn't mean to say that all the detail of the Titanic is completely down there waiting for James Cameron to come and explore it. And here's my favorite picture of the wreckage of the Titanic. Here are some plates from the kitchen, which floated all the way down through the water and landed on the sand, and they're still there all this time later. Um, they're just, um, they're resting on, the, on the, the, the base of the ocean. So I guess what I'm saying there metaphorically is um, just because you're not saying anything doesn't mean to say there's a lot of stuff going on in the submerged life of your mind. Thank you for your excellent um, nodding response. Man whose name is Veronica on the screen, but you're not actually called Veronica. <laughs> so, um, so thanks, Titanic. Um, and now staying with our ocean theme, I want to show you a picture of a submerged thought rising through to the surface of the water. So let's have a look. This is, um, for me, this is a thought. Mmm, beautiful. So that, I'm going to show you that again because it's so short. But um, what I find interesting about this metaphor for a thought bubbling or a memory bubbling um, or an invocation or whatever bubbling up from your internal system and then ev eventually coming out through your mouth is that the power of the bubble, the power of the thought is not necessarily reflected in the impact that it makes when it, when it gets to the surface of the water. It's actually quite an underwhelming and disappointing um, uh, arrival. And I feel like that about a lot of texts. You might feel strongly, but the word you say, yep, might be, um, might completely not uh, equivalently represent the power of your thought. So let's watch that again. Cool, thank you, Bubble. Um, now, classic Miranda Harcourt, I said that this was going to be much shorter than it is, but, um, but I have um, gone on too long and I want to make space for questions. So I'm going to go quite quickly through these next um, few slides. This is, um, this is from an audition that um, I was working on with somebody recently. And I just want you to read this out to yourself um, in your room. Just read out um, uh, particularly A's dialogue. Off you go. Just read it out to yourself. Great, so I feel like people have probably read that out. And, um, and now I just want you to um, repeat the final paragraph, which is impossible because it's a, it's a difficult bit of text to get your, your mind around. Now I'm gonna take you back to that. Um, I, want to, I want you to try and remember, my thoughts have more colors in them now. Yesterday I had a few colors and they were very strong. Now there's more and they're quieter. 
Does that make sense? Just see if you can repeat that to yourself right now. Great, cool, well done. So um, uh, the way in which we approach, this is a, 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 a real minestrone of, of words and concepts in this one line. That's why I find it really um, useful and valuable in terms of thinking about learning. Because um, the words, the concepts, the, um, the, um, they're so kind of bound up with each other. Like I say, like a minestrone soup, there are lots and lots of, of, of lumpy bits in it. Um, that I, I just want to show you what the work that we did in order to learn it. So my thoughts have more colors in them now. Yesterday, I had a few colors and they were very strong. We looked at this beautiful painting by Mondrian. Yesterday, I had a few colors and they were very strong. So thanks Mondrian, because here is a painting with a few colors, but they are strong colors. And the second part uh, now, there's more and they are quieter. So um, here is Monet's Water Lilies in which there are more colors and they are quieter. They're not quite so powerfully um, painted or reflected as in the, um, as in the, the Mondrian. So, um, so let's just read that again, that final, that, um, that paragraph. My thoughts have more colors in them now. Yesterday, I had a few colors and they were very strong. Yesterday, oh, sorry, now there's more and they are quieter. So um, I'm just going to go between these two images. Can you see if you can remember that, um, that uh, final paragraph? So you're remembering yesterday I had a few colors and they were very strong. Today I have fewer colors and they're quieter. Did, um, let me know if that, if looking at those images, it's difficult to see you actually, because I only see four people. But um, what I'm hoping is that for you, understanding that seeing images is a more valuable way of learning than just staying in the maths and science department. Now, I've got natural um, lack of affinity towards maths and science because um, in the high school certificate or um, what we used to call school C, I got 17% in maths and I got 98% in English. I got the, the top mark in the whole country for English. Um, and I got in the whole country, the widest disparity between maths and um, between my top mark and my, and my bottom mark. So you can see that I have a natural um, <laughs> hatred of the maths and science department and, um, and, um, and a love of the art history and the English department. So let's move on to this. Um, um, I'm just gonna show you a whole bunch of stuff that I hope help you to think about text in your own way. So this is a glass of water. And, um, and let's talk about Anthony Phillips van Leeuwenhoek, who in, 17, in 1676, van Leeuwenhoek described finding bacteria and protozoans in a drop of water, which he called wee animalcules and cavorting beasties. Observing a drop of fresh water, he wrote the motion of them in the water was so swift and various, upwards, downwards, and roundabout, that I admit I could not but wonder at it. So um, here's the picture that he drew. This is not a drop of water, it's a glass of water, nevertheless. Here's the picture that he drew of the animalcules and beasties that he saw in that droplet of water, which um, let him know that, um, that existence goes way, 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 way smaller than what we can see with the naked eye. And here's a contemporary photograph of the, this is a Petri dish, a contemporary photograph of the kinds of animalcules and wee beasties that are actually in a drop of water. Now that is the level of research and thinking that we have to bring to the text that we speak out. And here's another way of thinking about that. Here's a bird's nest. This is another work of art. And I'm, my apologies to the artist. I um, did not write down when I photographed this in an um, art museum in, um, in America, I didn't write down who the artist was, terrible. So if anybody knows, please let me know. So the artist took a bird's nest and deconstructed it. And this work of art is every single tiny bit of that bird's nest deconstructed and then ordered and, um, and put onto a board. Here's a closer picture of it. And, um, and what actors have to do is take the bird's nest apart, deconstruct it, examine it, experience every tiny bit, even down to the individual nature of the words, and then, which um, is even more difficult than this, uh, what this artist is doing, and then put it back together. So everyone here as an actor will have experienced that your first read, often in your first read through, you achieve greatness. And um, especially if it's a play, you don't achieve that sense of unity again until the end of the first week of the run. 
because that's when you've deconstructed everything and you put it all back together and then it starts to, um, to coalesce into the beauty of its original self. So um, uh, what do you think this is? Um, that's kind of a rhetorical question because I can't hear any of you, but, um, but um, some people will be saying it looks like a record. Some people will be saying it looks like a roadmap. Some people will be saying um, it looks like um, a, a tire or a whole bunch of things. Well, um, I'm going to just, I've gone really in close here, very similar to what that artist did with the bird's nest. And, um, and now we're going to go further out. And, um, and eventually when we come far enough out, you'll be able to see what these um, microscopic uh, things are. So this is a much bigger clue. And this is a much bigger clue. And this is a much bigger clue. And here we are, it's a, it's a feather. So going back to, this is the level to which we've got to look into the words, um, the ideas, the images that, um, that are, are accrued around any piece of our text. So I like to think of this not as a bird, but as a word. And here's that word taking flight. It might be, hey, it might be no, it might be yes. Uh, it might be why. Could, there's all sorts of, um, of words that the single um, exclamation could be. Here are two words. Come back. Don't go. Here are three words. I love you. I hate you. Here's a sentence. And here's that sentence in flight. And here is a whole Shakespeare monologue. Um, where the words are muscularly uh, related to each other through um, what they're now discovering is, uh, is quantum physics and, um, and quantum entanglement amongst starlings that enables them to make these beautiful, beautiful um, patterns, which of course are called murmurations. So once again, that is very connected to um, the world of text. And, um, and that's where I'm going to finish this um, visual presentation on this, um, this beautiful image of um, what is really birds connected by uh, quantum entanglement, but, um, but I like to think of as, um, as a, a speech. And, um, and now it is time to open the floor to questions. Hi, Miranda. Hi. Um, I just had a, a question um, in relation to the bubble being underwhelming at the surface. W would you say that this is also a call for better writing? Um. Well, you know, we all appreciate the writing when it's really good. But, um, and also, I, I think it's interesting that, that I think often actors bring an assumption that the writing is bad. And I think that um, a really uh, good example of, the, of that is Shorten Street. I think that when we're doing soap opera, we often go, you know, oh my God, the writing is so shitty, blah, blah, blah. It's all about driving the narrative. And that's actually not true. If you come to it with the assumption that it's shitty, then um, you're never going to be able to achieve uh, true depth and connectivity through the pathway of that text. So you have to adjust in an infinite way. You've got to adjust your own relationship with the writing um, in order to achieve the best performance that you can. Does that make sense? But I think that, um, you know, that's why uh, with my um, YouTube channel, um, I, um, I, I always say, Kia ora Defano, actors and creatives, because I do a lot of work with, um, I'm a dramaturg and I do a lot of work with scripts and writers and directors just as much as I do with actors. And absolutely, I think that yes, writers and directors can um, understand more deeply that thought is able to be read just as much as, um, as dialogue, is what I would say. But you know, I'm just, I, I'm looking at some pictures along the, the top of the, um, uh, the, the people who are present here. And I see my dear friend, Jared Carroll, who I so admire and is a great um, Australian actor. And together, Jared and I have done a lot of examination and, um, and research into um, learning in order for text to flower organically and beautifully and naturally so that it's born out of you uh, as opposed to being pushed out of you. And, um, and what Jared has been experiencing and uh, experimenting with uh, is, um, is repetition. And, and I'll just quickly mention that, that um, Anthony Hopkins, we were very interested, weren't we, Jared, in Anthony Hopkins, who's dyslexic. And so the information can't go in for him through his eyes easily. Instead, it has to go in through his ears. And once he's heard the text, he will then, um, he reputedly said that he would repeat each scene 200 times before he um, would then go on to perform it. I think that was in prepar preparation for the remains of the day. Now, Jared was doing a production of Proof and you had very limited uh, rehearsal time, didn't you, Jared, because you were replacing somebody else. 
So he wanted to come to his, his valued week of uh, one single week of rehearsal with the, um, the text absolutely deeply buried like treasure inside um, his spirit so that in his frontal cortex, he didn't have to be summoning text. He could have his text in his armpit, his butt cheek, under his foot, somewhere else in his body, but um, in his lizard brain, but definitely not up here because he wanted to leave that space open in order that he could reach out and be in, in connectivity with the other actors. And, um, and they, they welcomed his preparation with unadulterated delight um, because he had put all of that time into organically um, absorbing the text. So that, that's just a little um, personal story about Jared and um, a, a successful story about the hard work that it takes to bury it so deeply that you can access the joy of acting, not get thrust into the fear of acting. And I think that that's what we are um, all aiming for. And my God, it is completely within your power to do that. You just have to do the work. Like my friends who walked for three hours um, carrying corrugated iron and tools in order to, um, to fix their friend's house um, in order that it wouldn't leak anymore. You know, they put the hard work in and when they walked away at the end of that day, can you imagine how satisfied they felt? That is how I want you to feel after you have um, done your learning. Awesome, thank you, Hamish. Um, and, and let's have another question, kia ora. Oh, I think that's me. Hi, yeah. um, uh, so nice to be able to have this, uh, this session. It's absolutely incredible and the information is wonderful. Uh, my question's on episodic learning. And if an experience is really hard to replicate, if it's, you know, if it's really heavy, is there any benefit in uh, mindfulness or visualization? And if there isn't, how would you begin to break down something as heavy, say, for example, if a character's murdered someone, you know, how would you get into the basis of that to begin experiencing things for yourself? Yeah, great question. So um, um, I, I'm a great fan of metaphor, as you may have noticed. And, um, and you know, uh, um, I'm very keen on finding metaphorical experiences for people to engage in, in order that they don't have to be so on the nose. And I've got two examples and I'll speak them out now so that you can remind me, go Miranda, you forgot to say the other one. One is the film Buoyancy, directed by Rod Brathkin um, and produced by Sam Jennings, a great Australian, uh, recent Australian film, which won the Panorama, Panorama Prize at the Berlin Film Festival. Seek it out and watch it, guys. It's an amazing Australian film. Um, so I'm going to talk about the, um, the experience of the lead young man, Sam Heng, in that. Um, and, uh, and I also want to mention the uh, English director, you're going to remind me about this Tessa once I've talked about buoyancy, the English director who was directing um, Patrick Stewart in a production of Coriolanus. So let's, let's come back to that in a moment, you're in charge of that Tessa. But, um, but with Sam Heng, who's a, um, a young, 15-year-old Cambodian orphan, not an actor, but a found actor, um, who was cast in the lead role of, um, of this film, Buoyancy. Now, Sam was just a really well-adjusted, lovely young man um, who had not murdered anybody or even probably beaten anybody up. Whereas his character um, had to go from being somebody very similar to Sam. He, had, he was um, uh, kept prisoner on a fishing boat um, uh, and, and then fought his way out. And the character had to commit three murders during the process of the film. So I was like, ooh, that's a hard challenge. How do we find a way for Sam to experience uh, a physical and emotional um, action that he hasn't experienced himself? Actually, I'm just gonna share the screen and show you a picture of um, what I'm talking about here. So we sent him, that our decision was that we would send him on a pig hunt. Um, and because uh, there were two choices, he could either go on a pig hunt um, with um, somebody who was a really experienced um, pig hunter um, in, in, in order that he would be part of um, a culturally contained experience that was metaphorically the same as a murder. Does that make sense to you guys? Can you see what I'm talking about there? Um, I'm just gonna find a picture of Sam be too hard. Anyway, he could either go on a pig hunt or he could go um, uh, to an abattoir. So both of those experiences, Tessa, are culturally uh, contained um, experiences. They have a beginning, they have a middle, they have an end. Um, you can enter, you can leave. They take place either in time or space, but they're metaphorical experiences of a murder that would enable him to, um, to feel the sensations in his body that his character would feel um, when he was 
committing those crimes on the on the boat. Let me stop that sharing now. Um, sorry to um, fruitlessly go and find a picture that I then couldn't find. Um, so th so um, that's where I think metaphor comes in um, very usefully and your responsibility is to do that. And I think Michelle Blundell is on this call. Um, I saw your name on the list, Michelle. And if you are there, I'm just gonna mention Michelle um, who played the lead in a, um, a TV show here in New Zealand called Consent. She played um, the character of Louise Nicholas who, um, who was raped uh, and suffered uh, at the hands of the New Zealand police force. It's a really beautiful film, beautifully made, directed by Robert Sarkis. And I really admire Michelle because her character's um, experience of abuse began when she was 13 years old. And um, Michelle was playing the adult version of Louise Nicholas and, um, and somebody else, another actress, my daughter Thomason was playing the 13 year old version of Louise Nicholas. And so Michelle set out to make sure that she was on set when um, Thomason had to go through and play out um, the horrible experiences that Louise Nicholas went through when she was 13 years old. And that is Michelle um, having the smarts to understand that as an adult character, she needed to be able to have the experience of the, um, of her, the, the experiences that her character had gone through at 13, if you understand what I'm talking about. I hope that isn't too complicated and the kind of crazy knitting in my mind. But um, so that had two benefits. Number one, it meant that Michelle could access those memories because the actress Michelle actually lived through them um, uh, in that she was on set when Thomason had those experiences. And number two, the other benefit was it was really amazing for Thomason playing the 13 year old to have the emotional support of her older self there on set with her. So there's a psychotherapeutic benefit to um, Michelle's choice as an actor, as well as, an, um, as a, a, a value in terms of uh, experiential or episodic learning. Okay, now Tessa, you're gonna remind me, you don't have to now, about the English director who metaphorically was, um, he, he needed to find a metaphor because his production of Coriolanus starring Patrick Stewart was taking place um, in, Antarctic, in the Antarctic. He was setting it in the Antarctic. Maybe he was kind of using Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton as a kind of a, um, a way of exploring the character of Coriolanus, I don't know. But um, clearly he couldn't take Patrick Stewart and a whole bunch of English actors to the Antarctic or even to the Arctic, which is a little bit closer. He couldn't do that, too expensive, too impractical. So he rang up the local pub and said, excuse me, can we come and rehearse in your beer fridge for two hours on Wednesday morning? So that's what I'm talking about, Tessa, is that um, there's always a way that you can find, metaphorically find a way, uh, some, some method of experiencing your character's experience. I hope that makes sense. I can't see you anymore, Tessa, but I hope that that has answered your question. Yes, it does. And Thank you very much. Awesome, great. And so that, that is where, I'll just finish by saying this, I'm not a fan of, um, of imagination. I'm more a fan of memory. And so that's a little bit of like, oh my God um, statement, because the, um, since the mid 20th century, all, all acting training, Michel Saint-Denis um, through to um, Stanislavski's The Method through Stella Adler has all been about, about imagination. I'm like, you know what, if I can live it, why would I have to imagine it? Because my lived experience is going to be more, it's going to create that bubble go, 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 coming up through the ocean uh, more forcefully uh, and more unconsciously than if I have to make an imaginary universe, which, is, um, which has to happen, it has to exist too much for me in this space, where I feel like this space should be empty in order that I can reach out to you. And here's an example. If I say to you, I'm going to say uh, a concept to you and you don't know what it is yet, but when I speak out this um, collection of three or four words, uh, a memory that you're not thinking about right now is going to come bubbling up like that bubble. And, um, and your uh, facial expression will change in a very subtle way because of what I'm about to say to you that you don't know what it is yet. And here it comes. I want you to think about your childhood pet. So um, I'm looking at Lauren Quilsham, and I love how the, um, the uncontrollable tiny muscles of your face responded to the idea of your childhood pet. Now, it's not like you spend all day wandering around thinking about your childhood pet. Why would you? Because you know it's always going to be there for you. That's what I mean by um, episodic or experiential memory. It's there for you. You've experienced it. So you don't have to think about it. And therefore, your, um, the front of your mind is available to connect with, um, with your partner actor.
Cool. Okay. What's the what's the next question? Oh, hello. Kia ora, Miranda. Um, Kia ora. I was wondering, I'm totally with you in the, um, I love when I'm learning lines, like I want it in my lizard brain. But I was wondering if you think, uh, is, do you think there's ever a time or place or benefit of, um, you know how there are some actors, uh, do, I know this was a thing in old Hollywood, don't think it is anymore, where the director was like, don't you dare look at the lines until you get to set and we're about to shoot um, because of spontaneity and all that. Do you think that that's um, in a, ever beneficial or in any case where that's kind of preferential to knowing your lines so deeply? I think, I mean, it, it, that, is de that um, depends on the culture of the set. Um, and I yes. do not think that there is a TV show in New Zealand and or in Australia, with the exception of comedy, um, mm, where right. um, you can come to set and improvise your text. Um, there's too much money writing on it. So the, uh, the culture of your responsibility as an actor on a TV show, films are different. <laughs> Because um, I, I've been on a um, film set myself. In fact, um, I directed, co-directed that film. Um, I, I've been on that, the film set of The Changeover where the actress uh, was in such a heightened emotional state that she just couldn't remember the lines. And I'm like, as a director on that occasion, I was like, I would way rather have the emotion than the, um, than mm. the, the concrete lines. So um, I just hid under the table and dropped the lines in one by one. And then the, um, the lovely sound recorders, the editor and the actress and, and me all partnered in, um, in inducing and drawing out the, um, the, the best quality of the performance. And that, but that means that um, the culture on set has to be open to that kind of behavior. You have to be quite flexible. You don't have that kind of flexibility as an actress or actor in, um, uh, in the in television, television culture. The words have been written on the page for a particular reason. And, um, and so your job is to speak them out. So I think it is risky and disempowering yeah. to come to set and think that you can um, just make it up. Unless you're a little child. Because if you're a little child, then I 100% agree that you're better not to learn the text and, um, and instead um, come to set and allow the director to drop in the text or... Um, or or partner with a, a, a coach who's just on the edge of, outside the edge of frame, who can um, encourage you and allow you to use um, the knowledge of the frame of what has to happen in the scene, but to experience it freshly and to, um, to create that freshness by using uh, improvisation and, um, and this technique of dropping in, where uh -huh. you don't, if you're seven years old and you've, um, and you've got to say, you know, auntie, can I um, have some money? Um, I, I don't want you to come to set going, auntie, can I have some money? Which is a kind of a learnt tone. I, I want you just to be there, aware of the auntie, knowing that she's got $5 in her purse because you put it there. We, you watch the props person put it there. And, um, and then me on the edge of, outside the edge of frame as the coach, I'm going to go, auntie, can I have some money? A little tiny pause. And the actor just goes, auntie, can I have some money? Because the, the concept is being dropped freshly into the child's mind at that moment. And the child doesn't have to hold the structure. That's because the child's a child. We are grown-ups on, um, on this Zoom call on the whole, unless you're there, um, beautiful Ava. Um, and, uh, and so we have to bring craft. And what this session is all about is finding a way to use craft to achieve the kind of spontaneity of that seven-year-old who has to say, Auntie, can I have some money? Mm. Cool, thank you. We, we had one question, Miranda, and they just wanted to hear a bit more about Davies dropping in. Right. Um, oh, oh, Lindy Davies dropping in. Right. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know what? Um, I, I can't tell you, tell you about Lindy Davies dropping in because, um, uh, because I'm not Lindy Davies. So um, let's, let you, she's got a website. You can look up um, Lindy Davies and find out um, more about her technique, which she developed. But, uh, but I love the idea. And... Um, the way that I utilize it is by having two actors, say it's Michaela and Lauren, um, sitting opposite each other in the room or opposite each other on Zoom. Um, but they've also got, they've each got a side coach who would be um, Nick and Dane, who just happened to be next to them um, in the thing along the top of my screen. And so Michaela and Lauren are sitting opposite each other. Where are my stools? Like this. They're sitting, thank you, Sylvanian families. They're sitting opposite each other like this. And next to them on two other stools or sitting on the floor or whatever with the script are Dane who's supporting Kayla and Nick who's supporting Lauren. 
And so Nick's going to go in a way that, um, that Michaela can receive just a bite of text. And Michaela speaks that out. She's got, there's no responsibility on her to make a, um, to make an emotional gesture, to remember the lines. She's just speaking the text out in order to make sure that she's reaching out to Lauren and that what is primary between them is the relationship. And, um, and almost what is primary between them is the listening as, the, as opposed to the um, great, you're talking, let me use this opportunity to remember my own line. And uh, it doesn't matter how experienced we are, there is always a little tiny bit of that, um, of that kind of tendency, that kind of fearfulness. So this, this um, version of dropping in where you're using the chairs and you're using the side coaches means that you can absolutely just be in connectivity with your partner because it's Dane or Nick who are the side coaches whose responsibility is just to drip a little dollop of text um, into your mind. And, th and that I would say that that is the beginning of a learning process. So once you've spoken the text out, then you can keep going. Now, I know that it's time to finish. I just want to say one more thing, and this is really a valuable thing to take away. I would suggest, especially for auditions, do not start learning at the beginning. Because if you start learning at the beginning, your uncertainty about your character choices, your lack of confidence, and your lack of faith in yourself as a human being, mm. all get attached to the first few lines your character speaks on the page. And often, that is all the casting director gets to see. So why don't you start learning in the middle and learn all the way through the end? Now you're firmly rooted in the nature of the character. Now you feel good about yourself. Now your relationship with yourself is good enough to be able to gift it to the character. Now go back and learn the beginning and the beginning will be a stronger offer than it would have been had you um, begun your learning at the beginning. Cool. So I hope that's useful for you guys. Um, take those thoughts away and, um, and I'm looking forward to, um, to seeing some of you on set or on, on Zoom um, as you prepare your work. Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.